You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Well, this is one of my favorite places to be. It's not just a, a show of unity between churches. There's a, a deep friendship between Dave and Tark and myself and Dave Dealey. And really a lot of what we're doing in the city, a lot of what we've learned, a lot of our ability to love and serve the city is because of what we've seen here with you guys. And so we're grateful that this body exists. I'm excited for all that God's doing here. And it's a, a privilege and a pleasure to get to be here this morning to share God's word with you. So if you will pray with me, we will get going on our exciting topic this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you, Lord, that when we come to your word, you promise to meet us. And so I pray this morning, Lord, more than anything else, that you would meet each and every one of us. No matter what kind of week or day or life we've had, I pray that you would meet us, God. Show us that you're real. Challenge the way that we're living. Help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to walk out of these doors loving Jesus more and having a vision for what it is to live for him in this city. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are gonna deal with two very difficult topics and they happen to be tied together, which is great for me. Um, It's suffering and slavery. So the ESV talks about, it'll use the word servants to translate it and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later, but it's the same word, doulos, that you would use for, for slavery. So we're gonna talk a lot about what, Peter was talking to the original slaves in Asia Minor that in that time and then what it means for us today. So I'm going to read the text here and please follow along with me. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, but if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." We'll see as we work through this passage how difficult and how challenging a lot of this is. And especially when we look at things like suffering and we talk about how suffering applies to each and every one of our lives. Suffering's hard. And especially as we talk about slavery, you know, both as it exists in the world today as as it has existed historically. Those are both very, very challenging things to kind of work through and then understand how does that actually connect to me? Well, I think God wants us to deal with difficult and challenging passages because we have something to learn from every page of the Bible. And as you guys have been doing, preaching through a book like 1 Peter and preaching progressively through it, it makes you come face to face with the challenging passages. 
It would be so much easier oftentimes to get to a difficult passage and kind of skip over it and go back to something like John 3.16, right? I'm going to do that this morning, by the way. So it definitely would have been a lot easier to skip over this passage for me this morning, right? Dave assigned me the slavery passage. So give the guest preacher the slavery passage and, and throw in suffering to boot just to make it a little bit nicer. But I want to tell you this. As I have been working through this passage this last week, God has challenged me so much with it. God has challenged me not only to understand how amazing it was what Peter was communicating to those original slaves back then, but how amazing it is that God wants us to learn from that example today. God wants us to be challenged by it. God wants us to work through it. Again, slavery and suffering are very hard topics. But Peter has been helping all the followers of Jesus in Asia Minor, all of them understand what it looks like for them to live in Christ in their historical moment. And one of the, one of the groups that had one of the most challenges in doing that, obviously, was slaves. They face daily challenges, and yet Peter's saying the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel can radically transform the way you live too. See, in the ancient world, you would think, well, a slave has no agency. A slave has no free will. He does what he's told. Peter's saying, no, a slave has agency. You as a follower of Jesus are an image bearer of God, and God wants to uniquely challenge even you to live in a radical way in light of who he is and what he's done. Now this passage likely raises some questions in your mind. We, we know slavery is atrocious in every respect, and yet is this passage saying that it was okay? Maybe okay back then wasn't that big of a deal. What the heck, right? Secondly, when Peter tells them that they're called to suffer by God, does that mean that suffering is really a part of what it means to follow Jesus? Why would a loving Heavenly Father, the Father that we read about all over in Scripture, why would a loving Heavenly Father want his children to suffer? These are difficult questions. And they're questions that we're going to dig into this week. We're going to press through these questions today. And what I'm going to do it in three, in three parts. We're going to look first at what this passage teaches us about Jesus. Secondly, what it teaches us about slavery and what we can learn from that, obviously. And then thirdly, how it applies to the way that we're living in San Francisco today. And the overarching theme that I want to drive home today is that no matter what you're facing, Jesus equips and empowers you. Jesus equips and empowers you to face anything in your life. He did it for those slaves in Asia Minor, and he does it today. And today, he's going to use the way he equipped them back then to equip us now. So first, let's start with Jesus. Jesus is the key to understanding what Peter is driving at in this passage. And so I'm going to look primarily at verses 21 to 25 first, because everything Peter's doing, he is grounding in their identity in Jesus. Peter's not telling them, step up and get the job done. He's not telling them, you have all the strength you need in yourself to get through this. Sure, you can press through slavery. Unjust master, sure, go for it. Or take it in your own hands and take that guy down. No, Peter is telling them, just like for us, that the key to everything is to understanding who they are in Christ. Peter cares deeply about what they're facing. Peter's not making light of it. Peter cares deeply about them suffering, but he wants to help them see that they can get through anything because of Jesus. Peter directly connects the response he's calling them to how Jesus lived in his earthly ministry. Now, he's addressing this primarily, obviously, to the slaves in Asia Minor in their historical moment. But as we listen in and look on to the way he's doing that, he's going to teach us how to live in our historical moment. Jesus did not just suffer in general. Jesus suffered for his people. If you're a follower of Christ, Jesus suffered for you. So every piece of how Jesus lived his life, because you're now united to Christ, everything in his ministry, we can learn deeply from. And Peter's showing us that today as he's addressing these issues for them. So what do we know about Jesus? 
Jesus laid his life down for you that you might live for him. Verse 24, just drawing your attention to it again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He is dying for a purpose. He is suffering for a purpose. What's the purpose? For us, for me, for his followers. He is dying so that you might live for him. You are united to Christ. If we miss the point that Jesus is behind everything the apostle Peter is calling them to do, then we miss the point entirely. There is no strength. There is no hope. There is no power. There is absolutely nothing for you in this world to face any challenges you're going to face if you take Jesus out of the picture. There's actually not even much for you if you kind of just put Jesus in a little bit. Peter's not telling them, add a little bit of Jesus, mix it around and see if it helps. Right? I do that a lot, right? And you do. We, we just bring a little bit of what we know about our faith into the picture and we apply it a little bit. But no, what Peter wants them to do is he, he's telling them the key to facing everything you're going through in your life right now is to view absolutely everything in your world, to interpret every single one of your circumstances in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You cannot understand your life without understanding Jesus. That was true for slaves in Asia Minor and that's true for modern day people living in San Francisco. Because everything for us begins with who we truly are. As you've heard Dave talk about, this section of 1 Peter and other sections like it in the Apostle Paul's writings are called household codes. Why are they called household codes? Because God, if you're a follower of Jesus, adopts you into his family. He makes you a dearly loved daughter. He makes you a dearly loved son. And so your identity begins to drive how you live. They're household codes because we're members of God's household. We're dearly loved sons and daughters. We know this is true, that every human being can only discover what it means to be truly human if we start with God himself. And that's because we're image bearers of God. Our existence, our meaning, our identity finds its fulfillment only in him. And as followers of Christ, both back then and now, our reason for being is Jesus Christ himself. Every single exhortation in the writings of Peter, Paul, John, and the other apostles always connects back to our identity. Because each and every one of us, there's a phrase I've heard that I like, it says we are before we do. That means that what our identity is, what, what's most true about us, we're living out of that identity. And so every single time one of the apostles is writing you or writing to the original hearers, and by extension writing to us, every single time they're doing that, they are drawing us back to their identity. You won't find a single exhortation in the New Testament that doesn't directly connect you to the fact that you're in Jesus. Something's true about Jesus, so something's true about you. It always connects back that way, every single time. Because what God wants us to get is that we are his children. We've been adopted into his family. His love for us is unconditional. But I'll tell you this, one of the greatest temptations I face in my life personally is the temptation to relate to God based upon my performance. To think that somehow God extends his love when I'm doing well and pulls back his love and his presence when I'm struggling, rebelling, or suffering. Anyone else feel that way? I know this. Um, I have a 12-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 4-year-old, all boys, so we have a very active house. But one of the greatest things about my 4-year-old is for almost every day of his 3-year-old of his year, he's kind of stopped doing it now, almost every day of his 3-year-old year, I would wake up every morning to him running in, jumping up on my bed, and saying, I love you, Dad. And I obviously would say back to him, I love you, and, and give him a big hug. And it's, it's a warm, special moment. Because I'm connected to him based on our identity. I love him unconditionally. He's my son. Now, if I related to my son the way I sometimes think God relates to me, that's, this is what it would look like. My son coming in going, I love you, dad. 
and me saying, we'll see. <laughs> right? It's not that my love's inaccessible to you, but I'm going to see how you do today at obeying me. If you obey me and your mom, if you have a pretty good day, come back to me at the end. We'll review your day. <laughs> and I'll decide how much of my love I'm going to give to you. So you, we hear that, right? And you would say, rightly so, I would be an awful father if that's the way I parented my kids. Terrible. Because my love for them is to be unconditional. And yet me, as an as a evil earthly father, as Jesus would call it, me as a broken earthly father, me as a sinful earthly father, I turn to my heavenly father who is perfect in his love, unconditional in his acceptance because of what Christ has done for me. And I act as though God is withholding his love and affection and approval from me based upon my performance. How bad is that? I mean, in essence, I'm telling God, I am a more gracious and loving father than you are. And so God is constantly in his word trying to break through that. Break through it, break through it, break through it so we can embrace the fact that God loves you unconditionally. He loves you perfectly because of what Christ has done before you. Because you are now in Jesus, God will never love you any more. God will never love you any less because he loves you now perfectly and will love you perfectly for all eternity. Imagine that. Makes a difference to the way you live. Peter knew it would make a difference to the way that the slaves were living in Asia Minor if he could get them to ground everything in their perfect union with Jesus. If he could tell them, Jesus is not distant from you. Jesus walked through suffering. Jesus walked through far worse than what you're walking through. And because he's walked through that, and because he's your example, and because he actually empowers you, you can now face what you're facing. We, we don't get oftentimes how radical Jesus' existence was during his ministry on earth. Jesus laid his life down for us, suffered unjustly for us, suffered separation from the Father for us, laid his life down, and in turn, he asked us to lay our lives down for him. Bruce Waltke, and he does this uh, summary of the Old Testament, and it's an Old Testament theology, and he's talking about in the Old Testament, we can best summarize righteousness as disadvantaging yourself for the benefit of the community. And we can best summarize wickedness as disadvantaging the community for the benefit of yourself. How much do we see that in the life of Jesus? Jesus embodies perfect righteousness and then gives that perfect righteousness to us and tells us, live like me. So Peter is able to, pray, to apply this radical truth to slaves in Asia Minor. To early slaves, he's able to apply this truth and say, Jesus Christ disadvantaged himself. He laid his life down for you and now he's calling you to lay your life down for him. It's a radical thing that, that you, we can break through our circumstances, break through what we're facing, and arrive at where God wants us to be, which is being willing to lay down everything for him. Jesus, again, suffered for a reason, and he shows us what real life looks like. Jesus always used his power to love and to serve, and he asks us to do the same. Even a slave, he's asking them, use what agency you have, use what love you have, use what ability to serve and have mercy you have to love and serve even unjust masters on my behalf. If that's true of slaves suffering unjustly in the ancient world, how much more is it true of us that have far more control over our days, far more control over our resources, far more control over our decisions than they did? 
Jesus embraced suffering for us. He shows us what real life is. Think about the life and ministry of Jesus. He resists evil perfectly. He refuses to compromise with the devil. He demonstrates for us great humility and great generosity. He shows us what it looks like to lay your life down for the world. He shows us what mission means. He sends us then as he was sent. Jesus showed us a new style of leadership. He showed us that leadership's about service, not about domination. And everything he's doing down to embracing undeserved suffering, he is showing us what it looks like to live for him. And Peter applying this truth in verse 21 says this then, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. One of the commentators says, following in his steps, if, if you want a mental image of it, it's as though he's teaching you how to write for the first time. And if you're teaching someone how to write for the first time, you see those worksheets, and they give you that dashed line, and then the young child traces that dashed line out, and they're learning how to write. It's what it is. Jesus is showing us what true life looks like and, and helping us to trace it out. And how does, it, how does a four- or five-year-old do when they're first tracing it out? Awful, right? How do you do when you're trying to trace out the life of Jesus? Most of the time, probably pretty bad, right? Me. But we're, well, we're following him. He's empowering us. He's showing us what it looks like, and we're able to embrace it and to follow in his steps. And so we know this is true, that God does not, he does not, uh, sorry, he does not endorse injustice and turn a blind eye to suffering ever. Jesus took upon himself all the brokenness and injustice of the world. He took it all on himself, including my rebellion and including your rebellion. He trusted God perfectly. He loved perfectly. And we know from the total account of Scripture that one day God will finally put an end to all injustice. So God cares deeply about suffering. God cares deeply about injustice. But what he's doing is showing us that even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of suffering, we can find a way through it to live for Jesus. It's incredibly challenging. So in our, in our minds, we need to recognize that our identity is fully and finally in Christ, that he loves us and he loves us perfectly. And because he loves us perfectly, we can trust him with our hearts. We can give him our hearts and trust him and know that he's gonna lead us and guide us. And then we can go out there and embrace whatever he has. Now we can cry out to him in the midst of that. God's not saying make light of your suffering and, and don't call out to me. God's saying, bring your suffering to me. So no matter what we're going through, we can cry out to God, give him our hearts, and he'll help us live for him. So the foundation's always in Jesus. All right, point number two for the fun part, slavery. I want to say clearly at the front end, slavery in every time and place in history, from ancient times to the modern day, is evil, and it's an affront to God. So what is Peter telling these slaves, and why is he telling it to them? Well, again, let's make it clear what he's not saying. He's not saying that slavery is in any way, shape, or form good or right or just or acceptable. Peter's not making light of their suffering in any way. God, we know, is always for justice. Think about how God describes himself all, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. Psalm 68.5 tells us that God is the father to the fatherless. He's the champion of the widow. God is the one that is pursuing the cause of the oppressed always. God is not laying his justice aside. Peter is not laying God's justice aside. God is always hearing and knowing and coming alongside the fatherless and the suffering and everyone in this world. Think about this too. Peter, in addressing these slaves directly, it's a recognition of their dignity and their worth and their agency. He's empowering them even by addressing them directly. 
Who in the ancient world would have taken up a good chunk of their letter, a good chunk of what they know is the inspired word of God, and given it to slaves? Slaves were off the map in the ancient world. They, they, were, they were likely invisible to most people in society. And yet Peter chooses to address them and to address them directly. Because God's heart is for those that are suffering. And God wanted Peter to show the slaves how they could, even in the midst of their situation, learn and grow and serve Jesus. Because God knew that these words would be preserved straight down through to our day. So that we could benefit from them and learn from them. God is calling us to learn from what Peter is teaching these slaves in the ancient world. So what do we know about slavery in the Greco-Roman world? I'm going to give you some quotes. Um, Casey Jones was up behind stage giving me a hard time before I came out here. If you guys know Casey, that's not surprising at all. Um, Casey's the drummer that's up here. I told Casey that instead of actually reading from Keller and Carson and all these guys, if he didn't leave me alone, I was going to call him up here and have him explain slavery to you. But Tyler assured me that Casey might take me up on it to not to actually do that. So a few quotes. These are, these are really helpful in looking at this issue. I'm going I'm to work through some quotes of what we know about Greco-Roman world slavery, and we're going to bring it back and connect it to us. Tim Keller says this, While much can be said about this subject, it is important to remember that slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not the same as the New World institution that developed in the wake of, of the African slave trade. Slavery in Paul's time was not race-based and was seldom lifelong. It was more like what we would call indentured servitude. The modern reader winces at the words slaves and masters, largely because we immediately think only of the modern African slave trade in which slavery was race-based, lifelong, and based on kidnapping. So in the ancient world, slavery was different. Slaves could be anything from menial laborers on up to kind of professor-level uh, instructors. They could be occupying all kinds of, of roles in society, and they often were occupying those in a temporary fashion. So yes, they were at the lowest rung of society. Yes, they were discarded by society. But in large measure, they would only be there in a temporary way. Sometimes they were selling themselves into slavery um, to release themselves from a debt. Sometimes they were, they were sold into slavery after losing a battle. But it was a fundamentally different enterprise than what we see today. But that doesn't mean it's okay. In every place where we see the apostles writing about slavery, at every turn they're seeking to undermine it. The reality was slavery was a global thing at that point in time in that world. And so the apostle Peter is writing them to help them understand how to live in light of that global reality. But the Bible never condones slavery in the apostles' writings. This passage does not condone slavery. Peter directly addresses the injustice. The apostle Paul wrote to Philemon in Colossae essentially to command him to free Onesimus. The apostle Paul in all of his writings affirmed slaves, which would have been a radical thing back in that day, affirmed slaves as equal image bearers before the Lord. Over and over again, he says like in Colossians 3, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So Paul and Peter and all the apostles, whenever they address slavery, they are addressing the equality of the slave. That this person you call a slave, God calls your brother. God says in the Christian world that you are standing alongside someone that is not someone that is a subservient to you. You are standing alongside, alongside someone that in God's eyes is equal to you. And so Paul essentially, when he writes that letter to Philemon, he says, let me tell you about my brother Onesimus. And whatever you think he owes you, put it to my account. 
Whatever way you would receive me, receive him. And I pray that you would receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother in the faith. And I pray that Onesimus can be the same encouragement to you that he has been to me. It's radical stuff back in that day. They're writing and they're, they're upending the way the world viewed everything. So while not explicitly prohibiting slavery, Paul and Peter are working to undermine it. They're pointing out that, that the church, the only way to follow Jesus is to walk away from slavery because slavery as an institution is incompatible with the way that the gospel works. Why is it incompatible? Because slavery at its core has an evil teaching that says that we are somehow different, that you are somehow naturally lower and subservient, and I am raised up. But into the midst of that, Christianity says every human being is created equally in the image of God. It's in those truths that were the beginnings of the end of slavery. It's in those truths that were the, the continued of the uh, work of the civil rights movement. It's in those truths that the very concept of human rights began, period. It was accepted in the ancient world. Aristotle, read all the way through any of these ancient thinkers, slaves were nothing. They were to not be regarded. A, a conversation about slaves' rights would have been ridiculous. Wouldn't have even been something they would have even thought to do. If you brought it up and educated society, they would have laughed you out of the room. And into that, Peter and Paul and these guys are saying, you're all one in Christ. Slave or free, you're all one in Jesus. So F.F. Bruce says that while Paul's letters, what Paul's letters do is bring us into an atmosphere into which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. So slavery, whether it's economic or racial or sexual or mild or brutal, it's always bad. And the truths of Christianity are always working to undermine it, both in the ancient world and in today. Rodney Stark, one of my favorite uh, sociologists and historians, and writing on the history of the church, and writing on the, how the church has impacted the history of this planet, he says this, through all prior recorded history, slavery was universal. Christianity began in a world where as much as half the population was in bondage. By the seventh century, Christianity had become the only major world religion to formulate specific theological opposition to slavery, and by no later than the 11th century, the church had expelled the dreadful institution from Europe because they were walking out and living out the implications of what Peter is teaching here and what the Apostle Paul taught. And when slavery returned to the new world and when they started enslaving Africans and taking them over there, who were the first ones to rise up and, charge and lead the charge against it? Men like William Wilberforce all throughout who saw that their core belief in the gospel said that every human being is equal in the eyes of the God and that these are brothers and sisters. They are not subservient slaves. And so they worked to put an end to it. And they worked politically, but mostly what happened, what mostly happened when William Wilberforce would go in to put an end to slavery, he didn't do it through guilt and shame. He didn't do it by saying, how dare you do something so evil? Put an end to this now. That would have been true, but what did he do? So let me tell you a story about God and how he created this planet. And let me tell you who Jesus Christ is and why that should change everything about the way you view everything. That Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity, the almighty God, laid his life down for every human being, including these slaves, that you are treating so poorly and you're treating us something less than human. So what William Wilberforce and all these guys did, the power behind everything they did was that they worked through the gospel to transform hearts and to transform lives until they had captured the majority of parliament and voted it out. 
It wasn't just a political movement. It was a gospel movement that began in our hearts. D.A. Carson says this, the overthrowing of slavery then is through the transformation of men and women by the gospel rather than through merely changing an economic system. We've all seen what can happen when you merely overthrow an economic system and impose a new order. Right? You see that all over the world today. You had the Arab Spring, you had Iraq, you had Afghanistan. And without getting into the politics of those issues, if you just remove an oppressive economic or social system and don't replace it with something redemptive and restorative, what happens? Chaos and violence. They weren't just about political and economic reform. They were about total life transformation, and that's what bore fruit. So that's a little bit of the background. So what is Peter calling them to do? What, what practical reality does he want them to live out? Again, he wants them to see the radical impact that Jesus Christ has had on the world and the radical impact that Jesus Christ can have on their lives. Back in verse 9, a few chapters ago, Jesus, or, uh, the apostle Peter said this. This is the context for what he's talking to these slaves about. You are an elect nation, a people for God's own possession. Your reason for existence is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter is saying, even you slaves, enslaved in Asia Minor, thinking you have no agency, thinking that society has cast you aside, God does not. The call on you is to interpret your very life through the lens of your identity in Jesus Christ. It's an inside-out call. So often in our world, we think of religious reform or Christianity, I know I can, as getting yourself right on the outside. Is that ever taught anywhere in Scripture? It's taught against, never taught for. But sometimes we can think about that, right? If I can just get my life in order, if I can just dress nice and come to church and, and, and say the right things and mash the right vocabulary, everything's good. But no, it's so different, right? Jesus wants inside-out transformation. He wants to get to the very heart and core of your being. Every time I look at a passage like this, I was reminded of uh, when I was 16 years old, my dad, we were living in D.C. at the time. I'm from California long-term, but we were living in D.C. My dad was working at the Pentagon. And, and I had had a probably six or seven-year fascination by that point in time with 1968 Ford Mustangs. Loved them. Had books, built a model, and dreamed that one day I could get a 68 Ford Mustang. And so my dad says, hey, look, I need a commuter car to go back and forth from the Pentagon. Um, I'll drive it for a year. And before your 17th birthday, I'll give it to you. It's like, amazing, right? I thought this is the greatest thing ever. And then we start looking for cars on the East Coast. And that's when I learned the difference. If you live on the East Coast, I didn't know this before, between a vehicle on the East Coast and a vehicle on the West Coast and something called rust. <laughs> and so car after car were just rust buckets that we couldn't buy. And finally, and you know, I was getting a little bit discouraged, but finally I go with my dad. He says, I think I found the car. And we get there, and it's this midnight blue, unbelievably gorgeous 68 Ford Mustang, and it looks perfect to me. And I'm turning to my dad, I'm like, get out the checkbook. It's like, write it out, let's take this thing away. I'm, I'm just envisioning myself driving this thing. It was the perfect car. Everything about it looked amazing. And my dad said, son, the car is not about the exterior, it's about what's going on in the engine. Until we pop that hood, we have no idea what this car is doing. And so we popped the hood, and to my dismay, the firewall's all rusted out, the engine's in terrible shape, and we don't buy the car. But I did get a 1980 Toyota Tercel. <laughs> but I also got a good lesson. And the lesson was, is the substance of a vehicle is its engine. 
And the substance of our faith is not what you put on the outside. You can paint yourself up and look fine and pretty. That's not what matters. The engine that has to drive you is your union with your Savior, your union with Jesus Christ. If that engine isn't firing, if that rust isn't dealt with in your soul, you cannot possibly live it out. Our concern should be to to know that we are united to Christ and to be challenged by what it looks like to live that out. That's what the Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter rather, is even wanting these slaves to understand. So he's telling them, you can act in a radical way even as slaves. Miroslav Volf describes their situation like this. It's a little bit of a meaty quote, so stick with me on it. An inalienable dimension of their communal identity was a commitment to love of enemies and to nonviolence. To be subject means to act in the freedom of the slaves of God, and instead of provoking additional acts of violence, to curb violence by doing good, knowing all along that suffering will be one's lot, because one cannot count on the victory of good over evil in this world. To be subject in a situation of conflict means to follow in the footsteps of the crucified Messiah and to refuse to take part in the automism of revenge. And this is the key part. And to break the vicious circle of violence by suffering violence. If the injunction to be subject appears at first to function as a religious legitimation of oppression, it turns out, in fact, to be a call to struggle against the politics of violence in the name of the politics of the crucified Messiah. It's meeting, it's deep, but what is he saying there? He's saying that the only way you're going to break a cycle of violence is with something altogether different. You cannot end violence with violence. You cannot, if he had called the slaves to rise up and to take a hold of their identity and to live the way the world lives, to rally, what would have happened to those slaves? They would have been wiped out. Utter massacre. So what he's saying is, we're going to subvert this whole thing by you living in a radical way and loving and serving your enemies, loving and serving even your unjust earthly master. And you're going to put your trust and your faith and your hope in God, your father, that he will have you and he will hold you through it all. And you're going to put your trust and your faith and your hope in God, your father, who you know will one day deal fully and finally with all of this. It's amazing though, right? Because Peter didn't always believe that. Do you remember when Jesus was, was about to be arrested in the garden? He's about to be arrested. What does Peter do? You guys remember? So Jesus is here and he can call down legions of angels. He can do whatever he wants. But Peter's there. Peter pulls out a sword and runs over and slices off the ear of a slave, ironically. You know what's in Peter's heart. What's in Peter's heart is let's fight. Let's take it down. But Peter had been transformed by Jesus and Peter knew that that's not God's answer to anything. That their hope, their call, their everything was to live out their lives radically showing the world what Jesus looked like. Putting their trust in the stone that was rejected by the builders and realizing that that stone is our foundation, our strength, and our hope for everything. This has been the way that God has transformed the world over and over again. Nelson Mandela, one of my personal heroes, Nelson Mandela gets out of prison after 27 years of of suffering, 27 years of oppression, 27 years of injustice. What would you have done after getting out of prison after that many times, right? You're finally in power. I know what I would have done. Let's go get the guys that did this to me. 
But Mandela understood a deeper reality. This is Mandela's posture when he gets up. He is advocating nonviolence. In his first speech before all these people that are gathered, all these people that want blood and vengeance and then want to go out there and take their country back, these are the first words he has in a public gathering. I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for all. I stand here before you not as a prophet, but as a humble servant of you, the people. Your tireless and heroic sacrifices have made it possible for me to be here today. I therefore place the remaining years of my life into your hands. And he goes on to tell them that the only way we're going to rebuild our country is reconciliation and forgiveness. Even against those evil guys? Yes. Even against those that put us in prison? Yes. Even against those that beat our children? Yes. And he advocates radical reconciliation and radical forgiveness and stabilized the whole nation. Same thing happened in Rwanda post-genocide. People stood up and recognized that humanity, you can never end a cycle of violence with violence. But you can transform the world by transforming people spiritually and putting your hope and your faith there. George Steeman, one of my heroes, another modern-day hero that works in Africa, George Steeman himself was a former Afrikaner and is now laying his life down to serve the most broken parts of Africa. And I got to spend some time with him last week, and, and what he said was, what he's seen after being all throughout Africa, seeing all the injustice, seeing all the pain, seeing all the turmoil that is Africa, he says, what I've seen time and time again is that injustice and suffering provides a platform for the love and the mercy of our Heavenly Father to shine forth, like light in the darkness. He says, it's a mystery, and I hate it, and I'm going to work to end all the, all the misery and the suffering. But in the midst of the misery and the suffering, I see God so powerfully at work. God will bring justice one day, and God has brought justice in many ways through Jesus Christ. We know that. So for those slaves, even for those slaves, he is telling them your life can be transformed. Your life matters and you can live it for Jesus even now. He's telling them that Jesus is equipping them and empowering them to face anything, even an unjust master. It's a radical truth that we so quickly blow by, but it applies to us today. We need to own that in our hearts to trust that God's got us in the midst of any situation. To trust that God cares more about our suffering than we do or anyone else does to trust that God knows our circumstances, to trust that God loves us deeply and thoroughly. He's here for us. Thirdly, we're gonna finish with this. So what does this mean for us? How is God calling us to respond? How do we live in this world? These slaves in Asia Minor were called to suffer. We see that in verse 21. But does that mean that I'm called to suffer, that you're called to suffer? Does that mean that suffering is actually part of what it means to follow Jesus? It certainly was for the Apostle Paul and the early Christians, but is it true for me? 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says this, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you see, in our own suffering, 
and in coming along those that are suffering and in crying out to God in the midst of the darkness, we are letting God's light break into the darkness. We are letting life break into the realm of death. We are letting hope break into hopelessness. We are affirming the humanity of all those that are suffering around us. Suffering is a unique window that puts us completely flat on our face where we have no opportunity, nothing else to do that's going to bring us any hope except to cry out to God. And when we see others that are suffering, it's the same thing. There's this imagery you guys have have been looking at in 1 Peter, and it's all throughout the Bible, and it's an imagery of God breaking in. That if you think about the earth as a realm of darkness and chaos and judgment and death, and in the midst of that, you have what theologian Meredith Klein calls heavenly intrusions. So after the world has fallen, whenever God's on the scene, be it through an angel of the Lord, or be it through the tabernacle, or be it through the temple, it's always this image of this holy presence that's broken into darkness. This holy presence that no longer, in one sense, belongs in the midst of this darkness. It's so holy you can't look upon it. It's so holy that if you do something wrong, you'll be put to death in an instant. Think about that. God's presence in the temple is behind wall, behind wall, behind curtain, behind curtain. Because you don't go there. It's something altogether other. But then Jesus teaches us the true significance of it when he says what? Jesus says, I am the temple. I am the ultimate meeting place of God and man. I am where heaven is fully and finally broke through onto this earth. And because I have broken through onto this earth, and because you are now united to me, guess what, folks? You are now each a temple, collectively and individually, so that everywhere you go, the heavenly intrusion of God, light breaks into darkness. It's an amazing thing. So when you move to a particular neighborhood, you're not moving there because you got a great deal, though I hope you did, especially in this market. (laughs) But it's not just circumstances, right? It is God sending you there, Jesus sending you as he was sent, because he wants that place to never be the same, because he's going to break in on that place through you. Same thing's true of your workplace. You don't just work there as a happenstance. You work there because God wants heaven to break in. Everywhere we see God at work around the world, this this morning is like a gathering of light. It's the kingdom of light breaking into the kingdom of darkness. We don't go as Christians on the defense and say, Satan, please don't get us. No, we march out and take the darkness with the light. If you could see the city spiritually right now, what you would see is everywhere God's people are gathered would be like a giant invasion of light, a giant heavenly intrusion into the city of darkness that Satan thinks he owns. Does he own the city? No. No. And he has each and every one of us here to remind him of that daily. To live our lives with purpose. To live our lives with intentionality. To embrace whatever comes our way. To embrace it. To cry out to God for his help. To express what's deep and what we're suffering about. But to gather around each other and to collectively live out our lives in this world in a way that's so compelling and so subversive that we ultimately put an end to injustice. And we can do that because we believe that Jesus is equipping us and empowering us to face anything and everything that might come our way. So we can suffer. And when we suffer unjustly, it glorifies God. An important sidebar for some of you zealots out there. If you're suffering because you're a jerk, that's not for righteousness sake. If you're going in and unwisely and unkindly in your workplace, getting in everyone's face and being incredibly annoying, probably not Jesus. We will embrace suffering and persecution that will come our way. Don't invent extra for yourself. So God promises us that suffering will come our way and that when it does, we can embrace it. I'm going to tell you a story as I close here. 
George Seaman, the guy I mentioned earlier, George Seaman was in his late 20s, early 30s, and he's living, he's got a, a, an IT job, and he's got two kids in great private schools, and he's living in a wealthy white suburb of Pretoria in South Africa. And life is all as it should be, according to his culture. And George sits down one day, he's been a Christian for a good chunk of his life, or at least he thinks he has, and he sits down one day, and he begins to read the Gospels. And he reads the story of Jesus. And he's thinking this, if this is Jesus, and he's living like this, and he's calling me to live like him, my life makes no sense. And so he begins to ask God to open up his heart to what he's doing in Africa. And at that point in time, you gotta recognize the white population of Africa was largely isolated through propaganda and all kinds of other stuff from really understanding the true suffering. So God was asking him to open it up. And so he started picking up black African hitchhikers, which white Afrikaners don't do, and asking them their stories and asking them how they had suffered and asking them if they knew Jesus. And then God brings an older Zulu pastor into his life to mentor him. And the Zulu pastor began throwing him in the back of a pickup truck, putting a tarp over him and driving him into the heart of the townships at the beginning of the rise of the AIDS epidemic. That's a folk that, you know, George is there and white folk don't want him there and black folk don't want him there. And he's there to learn and to see firsthand. But then there began to be a tearing in his heart because 40 minutes away, he would be in this township and then he'd drive back home into his clean, nice, comfortable suburb and his life increasingly didn't make sense. So he was crying out to God and asking God, how can this make sense in your world? How can this be just? How can this world be this way? How can your church do this? And he began to get very, very bitter at the church. And God put this overwhelming impression on him and said, yes, the church has failed, but be careful, you're talking about my bride. So God awakened George's heart and realized that the way that God was going to make an impact in this world was by educating and empowering and motivating and mobilizing the church around the world. So his story's a lot longer, but he went, ended up backpacking, again, as a white Afrikaner in the 90s, backpacking around the Horn of Africa, taking almost nothing with him to see the suffering firsthand, holding widows, holding orphans as they're dying of AIDS and crying out to God against injustice and crying out to God and saying, how can this be? And at the end of his education tour, at the end of this, he's got uh, diphtheria, malaria, and a whole bunch of other things that end badly. And he's, and he's devastated. And he's thinking, God, I am done. And God brings this group of older African women around him in a village in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the city of Goma, which is a devastated city. And these women gather around him. They, get, they begin to prophesy over him. And they say, God's gonna use you. God's gonna use you to mobilize the church. And they're praying all these things. And George is thinking, there's no way. It's impossible. And he's walking away dejected. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him and says, now you don't understand. God is going to break into your life more powerfully through Jesus and enable you to break into all kinds of darkness in Africa through the power of Jesus. It's not about you, it's about him. So George turns around, goes back into that village and tells those ladies, I can't promise you anything, but I promise you I'll come back. And that was the beginning of a ministry that's now feeding, housing, and providing education for 10,000 plus orphans in Africa. And it's because one man decided that his life did not make sense if Jesus is who he says he is and if I say I'm a follower of his. My call on all of us today is, what about your life does not make sense if Jesus is who he says he is and if you say you're a follower of his? And can we collectively join together in this city to live like Christ and to subvert this whole dang thing and to let light spread in the midst of darkness? Amen? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your service. And we pray that you would give us courage. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.